Well, good morning, everybody. Yeah, most of you guys probably don't recognize me. I know it's hard to believe. It's only been six months since uh, my wife and I have been gone, but this dynamics of the church has changed so much. And so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve Green. Um, I've been a part of Lion and Lamb, or was a part of Lion and Lamb, for about four years before my wife and I uh, moved to St. Louis. While we were here at Lion and Lamb, I helped start uh, the student ministry called Mosaic, which Ken and Jonathan and their wives are now heading up and get to see some of the students that are here. So um, I now am uh, attending Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. And for those that aren't familiar with Covenant Theological, it's the PCA um, flagship seminary in St. Louis. And it's been a great experience. So glad to meet your acquaintance. Um, I will be here for potluck, of course. So if you want to talk and get to know me a little bit more, I'd like to get to know you. Come see me. Um, also, a little, a little side note, uh, the material today, I, I, you know, it's, it's so important to give credit where credit's due. And at Covenant Seminary, I had a professor, Dr. Douglas, who spent the majority of time um, in this class talking about what it means to be uh, in, in our union with Christ. And so I want to give credit that he's allowed me to use a lot of the material that he has in PowerPoints and kind of incorporate that into um, our discussion today and in Colossians 2. So with that being said... Um, let me get started. Uh, if you guys have kind of kept up with current events in the last, you know, four months, um, you keep seeing this, this, this person's face. He's been all over the place, and in fact, a lot of people were outraged that he wasn't voted Times Person of the Year. His name is Julian, or Julian Assange, and he is the editor-in-chief and publicist for a, a whistleblowing internet group called WikiLeaks. So if you haven't heard of him, I'd say, where have you been the last four years or four months? Because he's been all over the place. And what he did is, is he, he was able, to, him and the organization was able to attain, obtain some 400,000 documents that the U.S. possessed that were either secret, private, or confidential that, that disclosed everything as humorous and, and, and as silly as the spending habits of the president of Kazakhstan to Middle, East, Middle Eastern countries' fear of a nuclear Iran. And so the whole world was kind of, um, kind of taken back by this act. And, and some people, depending on what part of the world you're in or who you're talking to, either views him as a hero, and this organization is a hero, or a villain. Personally, you know, I think he's a villain, and, and, and it's, a, it's a big deal, but I don't want to talk about the ethical or moral dilemma of, of, you know, kind of negotiating U.S. security. What I want to talk about or what I want to look at more is, is that when it happened, you remember what the media was saying? How could this happen? How could the U.S., as strong as we are, allow for all these documents to be released? Aren't we, after all, more secure than this? That was the question. And you know, that, that question of security, that just kind of puts a finger or puts a pulse on this, the, our whole climate right now, kind of post 9-11, the question of security. Are we, are we really secure? I mean, look at post 9-11, you know, looming attacks, um, financial meltdowns, right? We, this level of uncertainty is all around us. And I think what happened with WikiLeaks kind of, kind of puts a finger on that. And that, that, that sense of insecurity and uncertainty kind of, in a sense, also can be spilled into our spiritual lives. We, we ourselves struggle with that. Are we, are we assured in Christ? Are we certain in Christ? See, Scripture is very clear that God has unified us, his people, through Christ. 
And it, and it makes no bones about that. But yet we and Christians in our fallen state have a hard time of comprehending this, this, this reality. And the, the Bible, again, makes it clear. So what I want to propose as we look at the, the letter to uh, the Colossians is this. Because God has unified Christ with his people, we must live and act according to this new nature. So if you would, just pray with me for a sec. Father God in heaven, um, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us here together as a family of God to worship and celebrate the resurrection as we get together for the Lord's Supper, but also just to celebrate the bounty of truth that is stored up in Scripture. Father, thank you that we can come together, and I just pray that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts and that the two would be unified as we engage Scripture. And Father, that anybody here that is, feels rushed or is having a, an already stressful morning on a, on a day that's supposed to be a Sabbath, Lord, I just pray that we can lay those things aside and just enjoy fellowship and enjoy your presence. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, I would like for you to turn to Colossians 2, 6 through 9, and then also we'll look at verses 13 and 14. This will be the first of, of a two-part series. Um, the, the leadership of Lion and Lamb has given me the privilege of teaching those, both this week and next week, so this is going to be one of two, and all I'm going to be doing is kind of touching on the highlights of Colossians um, and talking about this in, Christ, um, this in Christ life that we have. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of us, or some of you may have done the whole, you know, one-year reading plan through the Bible, and now it's the new year, and you're kind of looking, where do I go next? Because I am going to be in Colossians next week, if you're not sure where you want to go, I would recommend spending some time in Colossians. Um, looking through it this week and just kind of looking up these themes that are going on, that phrase, in Christ, happens at least 15 times in Colossians. So when, when in a small letter like Colossians, that phrase is happening that much. It's, it's important that we look at the significance of that. And so that's what we'll be doing these next few weeks. <clears throat> Starting in verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 6. And this is out of the NIV translation, but I will be using mo- the majority from the ESV translation. It says, So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Moving on to 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So the first thing that needs to be highlighted and going back to verse uh, 6 and 7 is that because God, and this is the first point I want to make, because God has unified Christ with his people, we must walk in him. But what does it mean to walk in him? It's, it's not just this, you know, let's, let's unpack that a bit. The first thing is, is by walking in him, it is to be rooted in him. Look at verse 7, 7a. Did you, did you see that? Paul says to walk in him is to be rooted. There's this, this sense of this, this tree metaphor. 
When I was here in Topeka, I worked for the city of Topeka Water Department, and when I first started out, uh, my job was to go out on broken mains, and I'm really thankful when the weather's like this that I'm not doing that job anymore. But despite that fact, I remember going out to broken mains, and as the backhoe would begin pulling, um, excuse me, when we'd go out to these mains, a lot of times they, were laid, they would be laid right next to a tree. So as we were kind of moving dirt off, it would go through so easily, but as it went deeper and deeper down, there would be these large fibrous roots that we'd come across, and the backhoe would have to chop and pull and, and tug to get these roots, these roots apart. And, I can, and when I was thinking about this being rootedness, I, I was thinking about this, this tree metaphor, because, because there's that one section of the tree that was being exposed, but if you were to t- kind of up root the tree, it would show how far and deep and how many roots there are. And that's, that's, the, that's the metaphor Paul is drawing from, that being in Christ is to be rooted in him. As one commentator notes, that that verb rooted in Christ or in him is basically saying that you aren't going anywhere. To be unified with Christ means that you are planted. So you can live a life believing that you know Christ and are rooted in him. This is kind of a weird analogy, and I asked Grace uh, if I could use her as an example. Um, and she's in St. Louis right now, so she can't defend herself. But if, uh, you know, I, I, I assume that most wives are like this, most women are like this, but they like security, and that's not a bad thing. And my wife likes financial security. And so for us, you know, if you've heard of this word, uh, it's kind of a Dave Ramsey word, it's called the emergency fund. We have one of those, and it's a big deal, and it's a really big deal to my wife that we have that because she wants to be rooted financially so that she has a sense of security. And a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks before we came here, we were out celebrating um, me finishing up the first semester. We were out getting pizza, and as we came back, um, we got into our car, and I looked, and the whole side of my mirror had been ripped off. And somebody had came and, and, and gave a hit and run. It, was, it had snowed in St. Louis and slid and hit us and ran off. And so we're having to use that, that emergency fund for, um, to pay for our, what's it called, our deductible. And so now you better believe that, that that's been paid out, that she is going to want us to save up as fast as possible, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the, what I'm trying to say here is this, is that for grace, a sense of being rooted in, in financially secure is allowing her to walk confidently regarding our finances. And I think, the best way that I can describe it, this is what Paul is saying when he says to be rooted. That when you are rooted in in Christ and you're able to walk, you're able to walk confidently. You're not like a little, uh, like, nut sage that is being able to pull so easily out of the ground. You You are rooted firmly in him. Second, we can walk in Christ when it says to walk in him by abounding in thanksgiving. What does it mean to abound in thanksgiving in the context of life in Christ? Think about that. What does it mean? For, for me, uh, we just, you know, got done celebrating Thanksgiving not so long ago, and I love Thanksgiving because of the feasting, but some families spend Thanksgiving also kind of going through, you know, the story of Plymouth Rock and Squanto and the pilgrims and how, you know, that's the reason why we are, we are celebrating this holiday. And some families, you know, will kind of go around asking questions. Well, what, you know, Johnny, are you thankful for? And we'll talk about that. But that act, that, that process of thinking causes us to remember a time in our lives in which we can be thankful. And see, that, that's kind of what God, what God does in the Old Testament. 
You know, thinking about Exodus 19 when they're, when they're standing at the, the plains of Moab about ready to, and about ready to enter the land of promise, God's saying, remember what I did? Remember when I freed your family from Egypt? Now, therefore, go out and live a life, the law that I'm about ready to give you. And when we, when we remember and we uh, remember the way that God acts in our lives, we are thankful for it so it allows us to walk in Christ. See, if you're a Christian here and you know Christ, I guarantee you that at some point in your life, God has either answered a prayer, he's either blessed you in some way spiritually or perhaps materially, or that he has shown some sort of revelation in your heart or enlightened your heart to new truth. And when that happens, remember that. To be thankful is to remember the ways in which God has acted in your life and therefore giving you that chance to walk in him confidently. So thinking about this, um, I don't know who I was telling this to, but when, when I'm struggling in my, my, my faith or I'm feeling wary, the first thing to go for me mentally and logically is I stop thinking about all the ways God has acted in my life. I lose that spirit of thanksgiving. I'm not walking in him because I no longer am thankful and thinking about all the ways that God has acted. So if you want to walk in him, do what Paul says, abound in thanksgiving every day. You know, I, I, it, sounds, I, it sounds really cheesy, actually, when people say count your blessings, you know, or whatever. But uh, there's some reality to thinking about in the day all the ways that God has worked in your life, answering prayer, giving you new new enlightenment about the truth of his word and abound in that. Moving on to the, to the second point I'd like to make in this passage, <clears throat> it says because God has unified or because God has unified Christ with his people, we must not be taken captive by fancy philosophies or strange teaching. In verse eight, Paul says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, for in, the, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's what the ESV says. I, I prefer the, the, the same bodily form. Now, this is one of those times, there's that word philosophy. So it's like, well, what does that mean? What does philosophy mean? Because, you know, in our modern minds, we have this, this, this conception of philosophy being something like, you know, Pla- you know guys like Plato or, or St. Thomas Aquinas or Immanuel Kant or, you know, these concepts like metaphysics or ethics or moral uh, philosophy. But this word, uh, this is one of those points that we need to make where we say, eh, the English can't really grasp what that word philosophy means. It's kind of like, the, the, you know, we have the word love and then there are several meanings in Greek that mean more than that, or, or wind has several different references, or what we use for wind has d- different um, references in Greek. This word, uh, philosophius, is actually c- conveying a greater semantic range or greater meaning than just philosophy and the, ten- the tendency that we tend to think of it. And when Paul is using this, he's saying not just Hellenistic philosophy that was there at the time, and not just sort of that paganism or, you know, that magical or sorcery that was going around at that time, but also in relation to Judaism. Philosophy to them was kind of an interlocking between philosophy and theology, and so that's what he's kind of saying. So he's not making this sort of anti-intellectual statement, saying ignore philosophy. What he's saying is anything that deviates from the supremacy of Christ, block it out. Don't be taken captive. Don't be, don't be sieged by empty philosophies, 
But what, what does that mean? I mean, what, what kind of philosophies is he talking about? We don't, we don't really know. I mean, if you look at most commentaries and they, they talk about this, 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 this teaching that was going around in the church itself and some of the ideas that were going around, they, they don't, the ideas are, are kind of endless. But what we do know is that it was prevalent. And, and Paul, I think, in thinking about this and where he says elsewhere in Scripture, one way we can safeguard our hearts to protect ourselves from false teachings that kind of jeopardizes our in Christ nature is by practicing discernment. Uh, you know, again, we don't know exactly what they were, that, that was going on in, in that church specifically, but what we do know is that that problem of, of false teaching is still present in the church today. Uh, we have a group, and, and Johnny uh, Vincent's here, is about ready to go, that's going over to Haiti, and we live in a time of syncretism, which is basically a blending of, of religions, and where you see that the most obviously is in Haiti. And, and Dan and you know, people that have been there can, can talk to you about this, is that when you get off the airport, because I've been myself, when you get off in the airport and you take those taxis, you'll see these, these paintings. They have these murals on their taxi cabs of these saints, and it'll say like St. Isidore. And you think that, you know, like, oh, they're paying their respects to the saints because they're Catholic and all that. Well, that, if you know anything about voodoo, that's completely false. That, in fact, that these, these saints actually re- represent sort of these West African gods. And so they, they blend this, the voodoo is this blending of Catholicism with Western African um, mythology or pan, not mythology, pantheism or polytheism is the word I was looking for. And, and so you see that especially in the Caribbean, you see that in Latin America a lot, as well as in Asia, is this, this kind of, this mixing of Christianity, elements of Christianity in with, with, with other religions because it's like they need something else outside of Christ. And we don't struggle with that or we don't see it as obvious here in America but the fact that that doesn't remain is not true. It still is here. I mean, look around on the TV. You know, Oprah pushes books out like Eckhart Tolle, right? The Power of Positive Thinking. You watch shows that, that kind of, con- you know, they, they want to get in touch with all these, you know, ghosts from the past, moms or dads, and all these people are captivated by that. You know, um, New, we, we were saying that we're in this new age kind of mysticism. And, and, and let's be honest, Lion and Lamb is, it's kind of like the, it's, it's the, the, the whale in the room. We are a conservative church, right? So I'm, I imagine when I talk about don't be captive by false, false philosophies or, or uh, false teachings, it's not applied to, you know, Ouija boards. I would imagine that most of us here do not have Ouija boards in our houses, Okay, we're pretty conservative. So this, this allure towards this kind of idea, though bad in and of itself, isn't necessarily we may have to worry about. But let's get a little, let's get a little uh, closer to the surface of what I might be talking about. Let me ask you this. What do you think about Joel Osteen, right? What do you guys think? Power of positive thinking mixed in with kind of word of faith. You give X amount of money and you're going to receive God's blessing. Is that adding to the gospel? You know, recently, the last four or five years, it's kind of diminished a little bit, but they're still pretty powerful. What about the emergent church movement? Guys like Brian McLaren and Doug Paget that say you can add to the gospel by kind of blending in what's okay with other religions. I mean, I'm kind of creating a caricature of it, but I think the truth there remains because of, of some of the crowds I was, I was with a few years ago. What about them? Better yet, and and a little bit harder, hitting closer to home for me, what about people that say, 
Love your country to no end, to the point of, of, of spilling over into idolatry. Is that taking away from the gospel? <clears throat> I, think, I, think, I think so. And, and you know what? I don't know. That's my struggle because I, you know, I am a conservative and so I'm not trying to vilify anybody here, but that's my struggle. I don't know what your struggle is. But if you spend just enough time engaging your heart and asking yourself those questions, that, that tendency to, to want to take away or to diminish the supremacy of Christ will well, it's, or will, will well to the surface. So I've told, I, one thing that I wanted to point out, that the way that we can kind of safeguard ourselves um, from practicing or from being taken or taken captive by false teaching is to use discernment. So what does that mean? Well, first and foremost, the, the, the Bible should be our meter and our, and our form of testing all truths. They should all conform to Scripture. And the, th- the funny thing about false teaching is this. False teaching usually will take the most obscure passage or the most hardest passage to interpret and just run with it. It usually never conforms to the whole scope of Scripture. And it usually is very odd. And so when we, when we test these things to Scripture, we can use that sense of discernment to kind of weed out these ideas that are false or, or, or untrue. But the second thing that we need to do when practicing discernment so that we're not taken captive and therefore kind of, kind of negotiating our in-Christ status is to rely on, on people, especially the elders and deacons of the church. Guys, Kent, I mean, believe it or not, you're our fortress. I mean, that's his job. The elders and the deacons, they are here to shepherd us and also to protect us from wolves. That's it. That's one of their main functions. And so when a lot of you, you get involved in, in reading books like The Shack or whatever book that it is that really kind of messes with you, I would encourage you to work through it with an elder or deacon who has been, who has been appointed for the sake or for one purpose of safeguarding the church from wolves. Use discernment by using those around you that have, have rooted themselves in Christ, who have studied the word, and therefore can help process these things out. You are not an island when it comes to growing in Christ. So using those around you is helping you to use discernment so that you can fully understand what it means to be in Christ. I could go on. I, if you guys can't tell, uh, false teaching and especially uh, in that context, is a little bit of a hobby horse for me, and I could do a whole sermon out of that, but I want to move on to the next uh, main point, or the final main point that's probably the most um, important, is this, that because God has unified Christ with his people, we must live according to our new nature. Look, to me, look with me to verse 13 and 14. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Excuse me. Six is building upon and, and working up to this idea that finally we see what it means to be in Christ, to be Unified with Christ, his people, is to live according to the new nature that we have received 
in Christ. And, and I'm going to use some terms. Julie McElroy is not here, so she can't get on me for, I'm going to unpack them. She's always worried when I say something technical that I make sure I define it, and I'm going to do it. But what Paul is, is pointing towards on this concept is, is two things that are, that are classic, especially in Reformed faith. You hear it a lot more. It's, it's the atoning sacrifice or the substitutional sacrifice of Christ that's being brought out here, but also double imputation. Now let me unpack that a little bit. What I, and what I mean by that. <clears throat> Actually, I, I got ahead of myself. Um, I will unpack that in a second. But um, I, I want to ask this question of what it means to live according to our new nature. And I think the first thing is by humbly acknowledging that we're dead um, to sin before Christ. I apologize. Um, it is often said that the major distinctive of Christianity that kind of separates itself from other religions is the fact that most other religions, it's the sense that you have to, to work towards your salvation, that you have to earn your salvation. And what's so amazing about Christianity is that you can't earn it. You, you just have to receive it. It's a free gift waiting to be received. And in verse th- 13, Paul says that you are dead in your trespasses, See, that, that cuts against this idea. And what I think, when I've talked to some of my friends that aren't, that aren't Christians, that really holds them up is they really want to believe that they're good people. And you, you have those people in your lives. They really want to believe that if they just, they just did the right things, that somehow they can work their, their way to heaven so they really don't need Christ. But this language of supremacy of Christ, it all falls short if we don't really understand our depravity. And that's, and that's one thing that I, I've learned more than anything, that we are so dead to our sins that before Christ came into our lives, we were on a pathway to hell. That, that's the reality. We can't earn our way towards Christ. And Paul's saying you were dead to sin. It was a debt, and it was a debt too big for you to pay through, through good works. I want to emphasize that, that totality of being dead to sin. Because in it, it allows us to be humble. It allows us to humble ourselves before God. We realize that without Christ and our union in Christ, that, that our depth of crossing that bridge to God is unfathomable. And that only by Christ and our union with him are we ever to, to come to a point of relationship with him. And what I wanted to get to in that, that second subpoint was this, is that because of that fact of, of, of humbly acknowledging our indebtedness to God, that we were so dead to sin, that now we have been made alive in Christ, and we can celebrate the fact that we have been given righteousness through Christ. And so now I want to talk to you about that, that what it means for the double imputation and the substitutionary atonement of, of what Christ did on the cross Like I said, verse 13 establishes the fact that you were dead to sin, but now we are alive in Christ and that that debt has been paid. And and when substitutionary atonement means this, is that because of our sin, God's wrath has to be satisfied. He is a holy and just God. He can't have an outstanding debt. And but somehow his wrath has to be satisfied. And it's only because Christ has substituted himself and atoned for us that we were able to have life in Christ because through the death on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. He substituted himself, Christ, for us in our place. And by the substitution of of that atonement, we now have what's called double imputation, it sounds a lot more fancier than it actually is. It's essentially saying this. 
Christ in this world was made righteous and we are sinful and we have sin. And when Christ died on the cross and we come to a saving faith in him, his righteousness is transferred onto us and his sin is transferred back onto him. We inherit Christ's righteousness. He inherits our sin or takes on our sin. It's kind of like uh, there was this tour I took where they, they showed this machine. It was, it was really cool. That, that, that would transfer uh, hot water and cold water. They'd somehow run together and simultaneously what was hot would become cold and what was cold became hot. Like that's, a, I think, a really helpful analogy for what double imputation is. That by Christ's death on the cross, we have inherited a multitude of blessings. It is, it is, it's such a beautiful concept that I think that we, we sell ourselves so short Brothers and sisters here at Lion and Lamb, this is perhaps, honestly, one of the most marvelous concepts that I have come to really embrace and to cherish in the last year. This idea that, that through Christ's death on the cross and his atoning sacrifice for us, that we now have in Christ a multitude of blessings. Again, the reality to this is that we live in a society that's so contrary to this belief. And that's maybe what he means by the gospel is a stumbling block. And what I mean by this is, is look, at, look, at, look at TV. Look at shows like The Race and Survivor and The Apprentice and ESPN and ESPN2 and ESPN3 and ESPN Espanol and ESPNU. You get the point? There are dozens of sports shows that say if you just perform a certain way that you're going to receive or that you are judged in, in your ability to perform. And that's, that's kind of perpetuated in our school systems, that's perpetuated in our homes, that's perpetuated in our lives. So when we come to the gospel and the gospel says that you can't earn your way, you can't perform your way to salvation, that you can't perform your way to Christ, it throws us completely for a loop. It cuts exactly against the grain of what we know as society. We can't earn it, despite the fact that we think that we do, and, that, and sometimes we end up practicing our spirituality in ways of thinking that we either have to earn God's blessing, or we do it fearfully, wondering that if we don't live righteously, that he's going to be that God that is sitting here wagging his finger at us. And that's, that's not what it means to be in Christ. Meaning, in Christ is this, that God doesn't see you he doesn't see Steve Green, the wretched sinner, even though that is my nature. Un, my unglorified nature is, is a sinner. He doesn't see that in Christ. He sees Christ. So I don't have to beat myself up over the fact that, that I just have to earn God's blessing, that if I just do the right things, that he's going to bless me. Charles Spurgeon says it well when he talks about our union with Christ. It is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. And it's not even your faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. It is Christ, Christ, Christ that you are able to live and to walk in him. Let me ask you a few questions and and just think about these yourself. This isn't an exhaustive list. But are you acting in a way that you are trying to earn your blessings from God? Do you condemn yourself or others for failings? Do you believe that if you do wrong and mess up, God is simply waiting to scold you or to punish you? 
Let me move a little bit outside of, of, of ourselves and think about those around us. Is your, is your parenting based on sort of this legalistic, performance-based sense of parenting, or is there an se- element of grace in it? Is, it? is there an element of grace in your marriage, in the relationships around you? Are you perpetuating a sense of performance-driven faith in your life? I'm not saying performance is bad. You know, it, we, I love sports just as much as anybody. But we have to realize that the gospel has no room for this sort of self-reliant thinking that I can just muscle my way towards God. There's no room. I want to I kind of conclude with a video. Um, before, I, before Kevin starts it, uh, it's a video that showed me, and can't, I apologize for, for taking it. He, you know, we... Us, us guys that like to speak, we're always looking for new analogies. Um, but it's, it's a video about a, a father and son named Dick and Rick Hoyt. And the thing about uh, Rick is this, is that he was, was born with cerebral palsy at birth, which rendered him, rendered him absolutely in, inability to compete in any races. But his father, who uh, I believe was a retired Air Force uh, reserve, reserveman, um, had built these contraptions and so which him and his son could run these races together. And I think this is one of the best analogies that I can think of of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be unified with Christ. And so as this video plays, I just want you to think about what it means to be in Christ and, and kind of how this is expressed through a real-life example. And then I'll, I'll say a few things and conclude. Who taught the sun where to stand in the morning? And who taught the ocean you can only come this far? And who showed the moon where to hide till evening? Whose words alone can catch a falling star? Redeemer, Redeemer. Redeemer. 
Just so you know, too, he's not, the dad's not running triathlons. He's running Ironman competitions. So it only makes this video that more impressive. Sorry. <clears throat> I get, yeah, taken back by it. But that, friends, that, that's us. We're not, we're not Dick. We're not the dad. We are unable to run this race of life, and we are unable to work our way towards God, but I hope you got that connection of, of Christ representing Rick. We, or excuse me, Dick, and, and, and Rick doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't, he doesn't um, help him swim. He doesn't help him paddle, anything like that. He just, he just sits, the, he sits there because he's unable to. But yet, at the end of the race, what is he doing? He's cheering, and he's celebrating, and, he's, and everybody is celebrating with him and his dad because of the merits of his dad's work. He is able to enjoy the accolades of a, of a celebration of a finished race. That is our reality. We are only able to celebrate and to live this life because of who we are in Christ. We are unable to get there. So let me ask you, if you don't know Christ, what are you waiting for? Seriously. In Christ, we have a multiple, multiple or multitude of blessings. You don't have to earn it. It's just there. And if you, if you are a Christian, but yet you beat yourself up, why are you, as a prince and a child of God, acting like you are a peasant spiritually? That is not who you are. You are not created to be that way. You can't earn it. You can't earn your blessings. God has poured them out through Christ who he sees in him and in us. And as we 
take the Lord's Supper and as we meditate of Christ's work on the cross and his paying our debt, him taking our place, him running that race for us, let us celebrate that. Let us celebrate that truth. Thank you guys so much for allowing me to share. Father God, I just, I thank you so much for this church, this community, and these people who, God, we are so different between our likes and our dislikes, where we're at spiritually. We're so different, but yet we can be assured that we are together, one, in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I, I pray, I really do, that we would act like sons and daughters of God who, have, who has a father who loves his children and who wants to pour out his blessings on us, Lord, and that we would live and walk in Christ, that we would abound in thanksgiving, not be taken captive by strange or fancy philosophies and teachings, but most importantly, that we would live in a way that reflects our in Christ life, both in our personal lives and in our families and with those that we witness and minister to around us, Lord. May the supremacy of Christ be known. And Lord, as we worship and we take the Lord's Supper, I pray that we can meditate on Christ's acts on the cross in which we have salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.